CLS is the weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. CLS is the weighing machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, please let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we'll talk about the Fed's rate cut and what it means for the markets and the economy. We'll also review ETF performance, the weird relationship between ETFs and expense ratios, and the power of compound interest. We will also discuss small cap stocks, mean reversion, and an important event at CLS this week, the quarterly CLS Investment Committee meeting and the CLS Forum. That's with our guest, CLS Senior Portfolio Manager and Director of Research, Gray Engelbart. Plus, my interview is with John Van Moylen, Head of Financial Products at Kenshow. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. How are we doing? As we tend to say on every weighing machine, the markets were up. And so uh, we're doing this basically at at month end, and um, actually a couple days into the new month, and the markets have been down uh, this week and today. But really for the month, the last month, uh, it was another positive month for the global markets, uh, really led by the U.S. markets. International markets were down a little bit. But for multi-asset portfolios, it was basically another positive month and basically a positive year. Uh, sentiment has been interesting. We've got Grant Engelbart here, and of course, he is sort of our grandmaster of keeping track of sentiment data. Grant, what are some of the big takeaways? Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. So, just looking at sentiment across asset classes, equities are a little bit on the elevated side, but not not extreme. Um, kind of the intermediate term, we look at an intermediate term and a short term, um, more trading oriented sentiment. And the intermediate term, um, again, elevated, but not not at extreme levels. There's still people that are fearful of this market out there. Um, and then on the short-term basis, it's actually been you know, kind of moderate, if not on the low side. So you know, there has been, uh, people have been a little bit more fearful lately, and, and generally, obviously, lows in sentiment when people are um, feel poorly about the market, that's generally a sign that it's going to go up uh, in the future. Um, pretty reliable sign, actually. On the fixed income side of things, that's pretty uh, elevated. So fixed income positioning and sentiment, people um, feel, I guess, you know, are positioned long bonds, and, and that sentiment is starting to roll over. So generally what we see is future returns and fixed income could be lower um, as a result of that. And where rates are, um, that that's you know, a reasonable expectation at this point. So I think that's that's important to look at. And then some other asset classes um, in, in commodities are kind of at extremes as well. Gold is very high currently, and the dollar is starting to move back up. Yep. All right, cool. Well, All kinds of goodies. Yeah. So, Rusty, the much-anticipated rate cut has now come to pass. The Federal Reserve cut interest rates by a quarter of a percent last week. So what does this move signify for the economy and the markets? Well, the move was highly expected. Uh, basically, market expectations had it at 100% probability or nearly so. Probably, though, the market was really thinking the cut might be deeper. It might be 50 basis points or one half of 1% instead of just a quarter point or 25 basis points. So the markets have been somewhat disappointed. Um, Stock market sold off. uh, The bond market rallied. Interest rates dropped. The dollar moved higher. It's all kind of counterintuitive, I think. Um, I think we're going to see more short-term volatility as the market sort of digests this. For the economy, uh, probably, I mean, all else being equal for the economy, it, it has to help. Uh, it likely prolonged the economic expansion. The, uh, the Fed is being proactive here. Um, I think there, uh, one thing to remember is that expansions don't die of old age. Um, but, you know, there are signs that could be slowing down. Uh, the odds of a recession, um, you know, again, I think people generally think the odds of recession are higher than they actually are. The historical evidence is that we're usually not in a recession. I would actually think, though, the odds of recession are probably slightly higher than they have been in the past for a combination of reasons we've talked about in the past. But nonetheless, they're still below 50-50 in our own estimation. Um, 
All in all, we think uh, it should be encouraging for the markets if they did cut rates. Uh, I think the 50 basis points would have signaled a much bleaker picture of the economy when it had kind of a negative symbolic value to it. Right. So as you mentioned, the economy is still expanding. Um, So why did the Fed feel it necessary to make the cut? Well, I guess we have to take them literally what they're saying. And uh, you could say it's more of an insurance cut uh, just to get ahead before the economy kind of like flips over. Economic data is strong. I mean, really, the economic data points would suggest that the Fed should not cut. There are some interesting things like this is the first time since in like 20 years the Fed has cut with the stock market near highs. It's the first time the Fed has ever cut rates with the unemployment rate so low. I mean, there's some clear reasons why the Fed should not have done it. But you know what? One thing I think is a factor is that global yields are much lower in the United States. And while the Fed didn't explicitly state it, I think there has to be some concern about the U.S. dollar being strong and that impact it would have on our economy. I think the president wants a weaker dollar, and um, who knows, the dollar probably was something in the back of their mind as well. In addition to the fact that I think inflation is something the Fed kind of wants. I mean, they don't necessarily want inflation to freak out, but they definitely don't want inflation numbers to move lower. In all else equal, they'd want to move higher. So there's a lot of signs that point to us being in the late period of the economic cycle, and that typically precedes recessions. Um, And recessions are part of the natural cycle of the markets, right? So how long can it really be put off? Well, that's a good question. The... um I mean, obviously, I believe in cycles, and everything has been just sort of abnormal since the great financial, um, you know, recession, great financial crisis, I was forgetting what the word was, about 10 years ago. I mean, it's just been kind of weird since then, sort of the economic cycle behavior. Um, how long can it be put off? I mean, who knows? But we can look at things uh, to that might suggest that a recession could be near, and um it could be put off for for months from some of the indicators we're looking at right now. So what is CLS watching for now? First of all, I think that we're going to have to continue monitoring the economic data and the future moves by the Fed and just kind of get a sense of the environment and the opportunities. I do think that our game plan hasn't changed. We think that uh, we are still expecting positive returns for the rest of the year for a combination of reasons. I mean, it's just sort of seasonal patterns. It's cyclical patterns, presidential cycle um, it's, it's sentiment has been weak, you know, as Grant's talking about. We just think there's a lot of reasons why the market could actually still have a pretty strong ending to the year. But from an economic standpoint, we do think we're probably late cycle. That's the reason why for one of our themes of be resilient. And we are building the portfolios with more defensive sectors that will tend to perform, outperform during periods of relative economic weakness. Okay, so Kostya uh, Edis, senior portfolio manager here, wrote about the potential for a recession in his weekly three um, from last week. And basically, he asked the question, is a recession really so bad? So is it? Well, it is, but let's uh, let's look at it from the perspective of an investor instead of a, a consumer or somebody who has to get a job. But to, from an investing standpoint, the things that I remember is that recessions are typically, thankfully, infrequent and short-lived. Um, but also, some of the strongest stock market rallies happen in the late stages of a recession or the late, sa- uh, late stages of an economic um, a cycle. So the average S&P returns in a recession, a lot of times, are actually even positive, which is interesting. So for long-term investors, even though a recession could be on the horizon, long-term investors are still better served by staying diversified and invested. All right, I'm going to bring you back in, Grant. Um, you wrote about ETFs in your weekly three and how they've performed overall in 2019. What are some of the highlights? Yeah, so I'd like to check up on the ETF market pretty frequently. You know, Obviously, um, we're big users of ETFs and kind of want to keep track of what's new, what's closing, and things like that. So kind of good and bad of a couple observations. Uh, assets hit $4 trillion in ETFs um, earlier in the month. May have dipped down a little bit below that, but hit, hit $4 trillion as a, as a group. Five years ago, it was just $2 trillion. So it's just the, the growth has been exponential and amazing into ETFs. Um, and you know that's obviously great to see and great for investors. Uh, kind of on the flip side of that is closures are also in, kind of increasing year over year. And this is just math also. You have more ETFs, you're probably going to close more ETFs um, to a certain extent. But last year was the highest on record. And then this year, we're at a pretty 
hefty pace of ETF closures. Really don't think this is that bad of a thing. There's a lot of ETFs that kind of sit out there uh, in quote-unquote zombie ETFs and, and don't really trade, um, don't garner a lot of interest, maybe aren't being sold um, you know, out there in the marketplace. So closing those downs we th- down, we think, is, is a fine thing and kind of maybe saves novice investors from potentially making you know a trading mistake or something like that on there. Um, the other side of things, of course, the big reason that a lot of people use ETFs is expense ratios. Those continue to come down uh, on an asset-weighted basis. You know, the average expense ratio is about 19 basis points, which is, you know, incredible advantage for for investors. You know, some of the larger index tracking funds are, you know, single-digit, nearing zero basis points. It's just the the race to zero is is alive and well. Uh, The simple average is twice as high, which I think is interesting, and I know um, we'll touch on that a little bit with something that Kosher wrote. Um, If if you kind of look at the total ETF universe, that's still coming down, um, but that's reflecting some maybe more active funds and smart beta products and things like that. Kind of the the flip side of this, you know, expense ratio is coming down. You would think to would lead to potentially outperformance, but just kind of naively comparing ETFs uh, outperformance to the S and P five hundred. There's maybe close to a record low in the number of ETFs out there that have outperformed the S&P 500. So this points to a lot of things. Of course, it's not fair to compare an ultra-short bond ETF to the S&P 500, but it also points to you know diversification away from the S&P 500 being difficult. And even if you just looked at the equity space in ETFs, it's only about 25% or so that have actually outperformed you know the the most commonly looked at index out there. So um, as issuers get more sophisticated and try to try to launch different products, um, you know there still is this this record nearing a record low number of, of products that have actually outperformed that that broad index at least at the current time. So Rusty, as Grant mentioned, Coaster also wrote about ETFs in his weekly three, and he looked at the strength of ETFs that have lower expense ratios and found some surprises. Okay, this is going to sound kind of crazy what he wrote about, but it is really cool. And there's a reason for it, and ultimately there is sort of a bullet point at the end of all this. But So what Kosha did is he first of all looked at mutual fund returns versus the expense ratios of those mutual funds. And he looked at returns over five years and found, as you would expect, that the most expensive funds had the worst returns. That makes sense. And then he looked at ETFs and did the same thing, and he found an opposite relationship, that the more expensive ETFs tended to have the higher returns. So that sounds kind of crazy, right? Yeah, how does that happen? Well, I think the reason why is that a lot of the higher expense ETFs are typically what we call smart beta products. And uh, these are ETFs that have rules in terms of their construction. So they're not just market cap weighted like the market is, but they might be based on volatility or momentum or something like that. And so basically, these smart beta ETFs are able to capture alpha, which is another way for saying excess returns generated by some of these factors. Also, actively managed mutual funds may also tilt toward these factors, but they just don't have that consistent methodology like these rules-based smart beta ETFs will have. So we think that that um, smart beta ETFs are disciplined and rules-based, so they kind of avoid a lot of the behavioral biases, and they're able to, again, capture some of the alpha from those factors. So, okay, expense ratios are important, right, because those small differences can really add up. And Kostya addressed this also in another section on the power of compounding interest. We've talked about this before here on the podcast, but it always bears repeating. There are certain things we almost talk about in every podcast, and one is the power of compounding interest and reason why thinking long term. We could also talk about how staying diversified is it's a free lunch. We could also talk about how you just don't buy stuff that's expensive. You know, you buy stuff on sale, patient. We do all those things at CLS, but the compounding thing, seriously, I mean, it is like magic. And the base of the point is that returns are often annualized, and the differences in annualized returns may seem small, but when they're compounded, they become really significant. So, for example, the U.S. market has had a 6% annualized return in the last 20 years. So when you compound that over, like, 20 years, that adds up to well, explicitly 236% over 20 years. So really, the summary point is that even small differences in annualized returns can have a really large impact on wealth over time. Right. Okay, so Grant, you wrote another section in your weekly three that was pretty interesting, and this is all about stuff that your wife likes. So basically, you put a portfolio together with a few random companies that she likes, Target, Stitch Fix, the container store, she's got great taste. But how did it work out in the markets? 
Yeah, I've, I've kind of had this this theory, this hypothesis that uh, you know, what is the you know factor return of something that my my wife potentially likes? You know, is that there's positive alpha from that or not? Uh, and it turns out, yes, there is. Um, this just random six stock portfolio, which she reminded me recently, I forgot a couple important names, but um, that'll be the the second version of this that that'll come out in the future. <laughs> um, I put put this stock portfolio together and uh, took it back to the least. Um, the most recent inception date of one of the, the stocks, which is late 2017. And man, I uh, was a little shocked at the results, kind of started questioning a lot of things in my life. But um, <laughs> <laughs> this index of six stocks, you know, returned about 50% cumulatively over the time frame, um, which, you know, the market's been up, it's been strong. But, you know, you're comparing that to something that's near and dear to our hearts, a value index, uh, it's just, it's an absolute. Um, decimation to a certain extent. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but I, I started to think about this. And, and there's a chart in the in the weekly three. Obviously, I'll encourage you to look at. Um, there's a, there's a lot of good points that that can be made out of this. And of course, these are things that I'm trying to justify to my wife uh, when explaining this to her. But um, you know, charts can be deceiving, right? So when this started at this specific start date, um, it looks good. These six stocks look good in in this instance, right? Um, the three years prior to this, these are mostly retail stocks. It was a 5% annualized underperformance versus a value index. So major difference um, in, in performance there. So that's the first thing is you gotta got to make sure you're, you're taking a long-term perspective and, and keeping you know, starting points in mind. So this is essentially these, these stocks were beaten down to a pulp, and then when this index started, they, they kind of took off. The second is you know who has a stomach for something like this? And this, this comes into play a lot. I've written about this a few times before. Um, on on some various uh, articles that I link to in the in the uh, in the article, the risk budget of this six stock portfolio is over 200. It's probably like 210, something like that. Um, there's a 41% drawdown in there. Um, you know, the, the, who would have the stomach to hold on to these stocks, especially through the the prior three years that aren't even listed here? So that's another thing. Is is again, this is a hypothetical portfolio, um, albeit it's done really well in the last two years here. Also, just picking stocks in general is really hard. Um, there's an article I've written about recently that just the majority of stocks underperform. Those huge me- mega winners, the Netflixes um, that are out there, Amazon, Apple, Googles, uh, are really hard to pick. It doesn't seem like it, but they are. Um, over time, a lot go bankrupt um, and things like that. And the other thing is just, you know, value over time. Obviously, we still strongly believe in value and think its time is near. It, it really does work well. And I, I use a, a dollar amount comparison in there to show how much $100,000 would grow um, over a series of time frames. And we know that it values underperformed growth recently, but over the long term, um, the, you know, the outperformance of value over growth kind of pointing to what we, we talked about earlier with, with uh, the power of compounding is just extensive um, outperformance. And we really think we're, we're nearing, a, nearing a turning point. So it's just you got to make sure you're, you know, some of these maybe fatty stocks can, can be interesting and attractive, but you got to make sure that's rooted in, in some kind of disciplined um, methodology, and, and, uh, which, you know, we think is valuations. Hey, a question I have yeah. is how did this article go over in the household? <laughs> uh, you know, pretty well, actually. Uh, there was some worry th- about <laughs> how I was going to – actually, the performance was, was, wasn't was really her worry. It was more of how I was going to um, kind of display her is what she was worried about. It right. was like um, – you know, depending on what I choose here, it's like if I chose Coach and like all of these like high class stocks or something, which she doesn't like, um, that she would be perceived as um, some snobby lady or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was her. That was her worry. Um, so it, it actually went over pretty well. Uh, she does own one of these stocks personally, so I think there's some offset there. So cool. Well, I like all of the stocks that she picked. So <laughs> Um, okay, so most of those random stocks um, were large companies, and those are obviously what's popular right now. Um, but as you wrote, Grant, we shouldn't be overlooking small caps, especially now, right? 
Yeah, small caps, we're, we're leaning as, as a firm kind of to increasing small and mid-cap stocks. And, and if you think about it, not owning a market cap index, we like smart beta products, is going to tilt us that way anyway. Um, but kind of looking at the smaller cap section of the market right now, I, I think makes makes a lot of sense. Valuations are attractive there. That's an important thing, of course. Um, but there's also, you know, as, as the Fed cut rates, um, there's potential kind of liquidity benefits. And, and um, as interest rates come down, that's beneficial to small caps as well. Um, and, and some of the the credit aspects of, of small companies, um, trade wars. You know, if that continues, there's some insulation for a for a domestically focused small small cap company. Um, so we we think that, and a variety of other reasons, kind of quantitative reasons, we think small caps have a good opportunity here to add to portfolios. And how do small caps fit into our investment themes? Yeah, and this this is kind of took a little different angle with this thinking about our investment themes and. And how you can apply this to small companies, and this is where ETFs really help. Um, being active, you know, one of our th- obviously one of our themes be be active. There's there's active options in the small cap space um, which we use, but it's also a space that you can add a lot of value as an active manager as well because there's not as nearly as much analyst coverage, especially now. You think about 2,000 stocks in the Russell. 2000. Um, that's a lot of securities, and and most analysts are focused on the large mega cap companies. Um, there can be dislocations in value longer than there are in large companies when people are trading those frequently and, and adjusting that. It may last longer in a small company and it may be at a at a smaller at a more attractive valuation um, than than you could potentially find a large company. Um, so on the be active side, on the innovative side, I think this is the easiest kind of way to apply it. A lot of small cap companies are on the forefront of innovation, right? Um, if they just go public, you know, if they're a smaller firm, a lot of biotechnology firms kind of fit into this space where maybe they haven't yet found the drug, but they potentially could, and then you know, essentially like a lottery ticket to that that standpoint. And a lot of times. Those smaller cap companies, those smaller cap ideas that are really good, just they end up getting bought out by a larger firm, which is a benefit to a holder of that as well, of course. And then be resilient, I think, maybe is the most difficult for people to think about. Like, it, why would I want to own small caps? They're risky. Uh, if we're talking about late cycle behavior and things like that, well, there's small cap versions of all the sectors that we're focused on for be resilient, um, and they have, you know, same kind of outperformance benefits in down markets ver- as large cap companies do. Um, you know, they're a little riskier, of course. So they don't, you know, large caps do outperform in a lot of instances there, but the smaller companies still show that that resilience, if you will, versus their parent index and versus kind of the broad market. So, um, you know, we, we think there's there's small caps should be included. Um, you know, we're at one of those extremes, I think, with large versus small or getting there that we are with growth and value and emerging market valuations, international versus domestic valuations. Um, and, and we do think, you know, mean reversion is a very powerful force and it's... Uh, it's it's time is it's time is near. So we discussed our investment themes at an important meeting this week. It was the quarterly CLS Investment Committee meeting and the CLS Forum. Rusty, what was it all about? Well, first of all, the CLS Investment Committee is composed of senior investment team members, senior compliance people, and our former CEO Todd Clark. And the investment committee meeting, it, it has a couple different functions. One, it, it does on a quarterly basis formally reviews uh, CLS performance across all strategies. We also do an in-depth look at market risk. I mean, this is stuff we do all the time anyway, but this is in a more formal setting. And the investment committee is really in charge of two things, so it does have some teeth to it. First of all, it is in charge of our methodology and philosophy risk budgeting and any changes that have to be approved by investment committee. And the other thing, which is which is really important, is really the CLS investment themes, which we've talked about quite a bit. As a part of the investment committee, we always have something called the CLS Forum, which is where we bring in uh, two outside speakers to present on topics related to the investment themes, either making points for or against them or helping us introduce new themes. So, and we had some great presenters on topics this quarter, right? We really did. I mean, I, I mean, I can't think of where we've had a bad presenter, but we really had particularly two good ones this week. One was uh, through State Street Global Advisors. Uh, they work with a firm called Kinshow, and uh, there's an individual that works there named John Van Moylan, and he really talked about a lot of stuff that pertains to our Be Innovative theme. Great discussion. And then related to our Be Resilient theme, we had Dave Braun in from PIMCO. He manages 
the Bond ETF. And um, again, he's just a very dynamic speaker. When it came to Van Moylen, he, again, just gave a basic overview of Kensho and his background. And again, Kensho is really a thought leader on the new economy. And he went into a bunch of different uh, industries related to uh, future security, smart mobility, clean energy, final frontiers, intelligence structures, all kinds of stuff like that. And um, on the podcast um, interview, I was also able to ask him what he thinks makes a successful entrepreneur. Um, just a really just great conversation. And as for Dave Braun, again, just a great speaker, had tons of energy and passion for the topic. And uh, remarkably, a lot of fixed income folks do, but he was particularly good. Uh, Pimco, again, of course, is one of the top fixed income shops and really has been now for decades. And the bond ETF was formed as an equivalent of Pimco Total Return, which was once the largest mutual fund in, in the whole world. There are differences now between that, the ETF and the mutual fund. But anyway, he gave us great insights from Pimco on the economy and the global financial markets um, and just really stressed the value of fixed income and the importance of being active within that fixed income class. Well, we're going to come back to Ben Moyland at the end of the show. Um, he's your interview that you have today. But before we do, I want to talk about a pretty cool adventure that you had recently, which was hiking the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Yeah. You heard about that in there monthly. This is no ordinary hike. 25 miles and 9,000 vertical feet. The things you got to do for work sometimes, <laughs> I tell you. Yeah, thanks. Well, it was um, Chip and Skip's excellent adventure. It's something that happens every year. And it's, it's basically, there has to be an element of death involved in all of these, but nobody has died yet. But uh, we hiked the presidential range in New Hampshire all in one day. It's usually a two-day hike. We did it in one day. And the group was composed of financial advisors and C-level executives from financial services firms all across the country. You know what's really cool about hiking and hanging out with this crowd is just all the conversations you have. And what's really cool is the pride that advisors have in what they do and what they're able to accomplish for their clients. And it's cool just swapping stories on the trail. And it just always reminds you that what we do isn't just about numbers. It's about, it's about relationships and conversations, really. And I hear this from advisors all across the country, and it's really what I believe, too, that you know, we, we all should be really grateful for all the opportunities we have and the growth and innovations in the, in the market that we can really take advantage of. Of course, we can't control the markets, but um, what we can do is provide the discipline and patience that investors need. And, you know, I feel it's my life's work. It's my responsibility to hire a calling. And it's interesting. It's, so many other advisors think the same way. It's pretty cool. Right. And we always take away lessons from our life experiences and apply them to our work here at CLS. So what is CLS doing now that relates to what you learned? Well, you know, I guess the th first thing that comes to my mind, it, well, first of all, we're always developing new ways to empower advisors and investors, but what comes to my mind is our, the podcast from a couple weeks ago and uh, related to that, and we have a new tool called Investor Blueprint coming out, which is an in-depth psychological assessment that uncovers behavioral patterns that impact financial decision-making, and it's led by our chief behavioral scientist and analytics officer, Nick Ariola. And Blueprint really comes up with four basic behavioral profiles, and it's based off of such as uncertainty control or social orientation. But really, the tool, really cool tool, and it just helps us better understand investors and help advisors communicate potential challenges that, that could interfere with achieving financial goals. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this portion of the podcast. Hey, Grant, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on. Next up is Rusty's Q&A. Today, he talks to John Van Moylan. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, just a fascinating conversation. John Van Moylan's been, uh, again, he started up multiple businesses, and um, the Kin Show is a, is a fascinating company and all the things they do and the products they've created. So it's pretty cool. All right. Well, let's take a listen. All right. Well, today's guest on CLS is the Wang Machine is John Van Moylan, uh, head of financial products at Kin Show. Welcome, John. Well, thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. Well, first of all, the, the very first question is, who are you and who is Kensho? So uh, let me tell you a little bit about Kensho. Uh, we are what I refer to as a teenage startup. So we started in 2013, um, headquartered in Cambridge, Mass. Um, original strategic partners and investors, uh, Google Ventures, um, Goldman Sachs, uh, where in fact we were incubated for 12 months. Uh, and NBC Universal, so think CNBC, we provide on analyt anal analytics for yeah. those guys. Um, and, th you know, they've been fantastic partners. S&P uh, led our B round, which closed at the beginning of 17, and uh, subsequently bought the company 
uh, in April of last year. So we operate as a as a division within uh, within uh, SPGI. Um, I think I've heard of some of those companies you've mentioned so far. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Those small, <laughs> small little tastes. Yeah. Of, um, and they, you know, they, oh, clearly they've been they've been fantastic partners to us. And and perhaps unsurprising, given that that um, raft of uh, investors, we spent a lot of time working in uh, alternative data, uh, so data analytics, machine intelligence, um, and our core mission has always been to bring insight into uh, complex systems. Mm -hmm. So whether that be a messy financial world, whether it may be defense. So we have a security division down in DC. Um, so applying many of the same techniques, but to a different problem set, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's been our core mission from day one. It's, it's bringing insight into complex systems. Um, and that's really set the stage uh, for a lot of what we're going to talk today about with the fourth industrial revolution and the new economy and so right. on. It's fascinating. Um, already, it sounds like we have enough material for an hour-long plus podcast <laughs> interview. So we'll try to condense it as much as we can. Yeah. All right. So the fourth industrial revolution or the new economy, how do you describe that? What is it and why should investors be excited? Well, so I think it's what we're seeing is that um, rapid developments in artificial intelligence, um, robotics, automation in general, actually, um, coupled with ubiquitous connectivity, exponential processing power, these mutually reinforcing catalysts, because they've each been around for a while, haven't they? So, it, but it, they've reached a tipping point. And the um, mutually reinforcing characteristic has um, led to structural change, and we're certainly at the cusp of pervasive structural change to the global economy. Um, it, and this is, this is everything from uh, you know, infrastructure, transportation, this is uh, uh, healthcare, genetic engineering, right? Implantable and wearable technology, all the way to the commercialization of space. So this is pretty much every aspect of our lives will be changed. And just give you a sense of scale, and I think this is, this is an eye-opener for a lot of people when we talk about this um, out on the road. Uh, McKinsey Global Institute did a very interesting study. They did an exhaustive study, actually, where they decomposed job functions into job activities, et cetera, right? And they went through the whole raft of, of different job functions out there. And they have estimated that 50% of all compensated activities um, are automatable using t a demonstrable technology today, right? So this isn't arm-waving, saying this is what AI is going to look like in 10 years' time or whatever. And that equates to $16 trillion globally and $2.7 in the U.S. Yeah. Right? Um, you've got PwC, um, interesting study. They, they actually came up with a range. The low end of the range is 32% of American workers will need to change occupations by 2030. So, you know, that's 45 to 50 million Americans already in the workplace will need to change occupations over the next 11 years. It sounds like we're having an oversupply of yoga teachers soon. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe. Well, I got to Well, first of all, when you say that, um, there's two ways to look at it. As an investor, yeah. super exciting. Companies are going to get productivity enhancements, profitability gains. There's obviously disruption, but there's going to be yeah. opportunity. But as... Um, as somebody looking for a job, it's going to be perhaps a little not quite as exciting? Well, I think it's certainly going to be exciting. Oh, exciting. Um, well, that's I, I think, yeah, I yeah. think uh, the, the question is, is it going to be predictable? And, right. I, and I think that, uh, you know, during, during periods of, of extensive change, clearly things aren't predictable. That's yeah. by definition. Um, you know, no, I think from an investor's point of view, clearly um, – uh, these kinds of structural, and we've seen them before, haven't we? Like, you know, if you think about tech in the in the late '90s, right? And this was a small, in some respects, a fairly small uh, part of the the kind of breadth of impact that we're talking about. Um, there's huge opportunity there as an investor. There, there's huge risk, though, clearly. Um, and we know that, you know, if current production uh, predictions are run true, that 50% of the S&P 500 names will not exist in 10 years' time. Right. So, you know, not all for bad reason, um, of course. You know, there's M&A activity and so on. But the point is that things are moving, going to be moving very rapidly. And as an investor, 
clearly the, the, um, what will be important here is to um, uh, be aware that these things are moving very fast yeah. and to ha- you know, ensure that you have this sort of forward-looking lens. From a societal perspective, I think what's interesting is that um, uh, you know, things are going to look very different. The demographics, we've done some research. We uh, published a white paper, which is out on our website. We've done some research whereby uh, we looked at uh, periods of prior, prior industrial revolutions and periods of extreme change. And um, uh, certainly what we see over the next sort of 10 to 15 years is in keeping in terms of the breadth of impact, um, it's far foreshortened. Um, and I think the interesting thing now is the demographics have changed. So this is the demo, you know, what we're looking at here is in the context of an aging society. So if you want economic expansion um, it, during, uh, you know, within the context of an aging demographic, you're going to have to somehow, um, uh, you know, uh, improve productivity. And so this is where the automation comes in. Yeah. I think the issue is going to be much less about yoga, lots of you know, an excess of yoga teachers, and and much more about uh, reskilling uh, people. So it's right. not that we're going to have time on our hands. If if we want to have this economic expansion within the context of what I'm talking about, then actually all the humans plus all the automation will be required to make that happen. Right. Um, right. Uh, the question is, I think, from our point of view, is how do we support people during that transition, and how do we train them? I have two questions here. So first of all, how would you, if you're in a room full of people who are not very sophisticated on technology, how would you simply describe artificial intelligence? So this, um, simply, this is a a machine taking on the cognitive capabilities that we typically associate with a human. So a machine can learn, it can sense. Um, and those are the kinds of um, capabilities that you know typically we haven't seen before, right? Mm-hmm. So you know even during the, the you know the dot com boom and and you know the advent of you know the third industrial revolution, which was the introduction of uh, computers and so on in the late sixties, early seventies, that was a huge productivity boost. But it was rote tasks, right? It wasn't decision making tasks, right? Mm-hmm. It was it, you know these were. Uh, improving the efficiency of sort of existing workflows and so on. Um, And I think the step change that we see is now the nature of that automation. So, um, and, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole around artificial intelligence. But the bottom line is it's extraordinarily powerful. Um, But it requires a lot of data and a lot of expertise to to make happen. Okay, I have another question. So it's a question I didn't actually prepare you for, but something I was thinking about here on some of your comments already. So given a lot of this change, I would think all else being equal that uh, generally smaller, more nimble companies would be able to take advantage of a lot of things as opposed to maybe some of the larger companies. Um, maybe that assumption is wrong. So I guess based on what I'm driving at, would some of the large technology companies, are they vulnerable, such as the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons, or do they just have so much strength and resources and talent already that they're yeah. they're not vulnerable? Well, I, I, I think that's a great question. And there, I can come at this from a couple of different ways. The first is when we, we as you know, we've done a lot of research looking at the um, – innovation and industries of the fourth industrial revolution. So we've mm-hmm. really gone under the cover to look at, first of all, you know, what is happening? What's the extent of this? And what are the companies that are actually involved in it? And to what extent are they? And how are they involved in, in this disruption? Mm-hmm. If I look across that population, and that's, we've got about 380 companies in that population, so about 10% of the equity, listed equities in the, in the US, um, then uh, I see that actually there's a fairly equal distribution between large, mid, and small cap names. And I think that's very instructive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, wh- while the assumption may be this level of innovation must be in the garage, it's actually not. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, that's entirely intuitive, actually. But, but yeah. you know, our assumption is often that it must be that, that, that level of, of innovation. I think that... Um, 
large, you know, people, what is interesting is that Facebook, uh, Google and Amazon and so on have this very dominant position. What I, I think is interesting is there's been, it's what I call democratized infrastructure, which actually has a fairly broad meaning, but that um, they're actually making valuable IP available for free for third parties to use. So you can use Google Sentence Encoder if you're looking to look for the similarity between text. You don't have to pay anything. Um, so what is interesting is you've got these, these tech companies um, that are in these very dominant positions that are actually enabling a lot of innovation because they actually are giving a, a leg up to all these companies. You couple yeah. that then with on-demand um, uh, compute power and you can see how the barriers to entry are being lowered. Yeah. So th there's an interesting yin and yang there, yeah. um, uh, I think, you know, with these. But the reality is I think they, they are vulnerable because um, while they have a lot of resources, things are changing incredibly quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've seen it with Facebook and privacy concerns and so on. Um, yeah. So there are so many fascinating new industries that are coming about, and Kensho works a lot of different ETFs that kind of specialize in all of these different industries. Yeah. So instead of kind of going down the whole list, I want to set it up where I want to know which one of those industries excites you the most. That means you got to basically say who your favorite child is. Right. Okay. Well, yes, and you know how popular <laughs> that is, right? Um, so which of all these new industries excites you the most? So well, so so I think there's. Um, so just for, 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 the, for the listeners, um, just to provide some context here, we've identified um, uh, 25 different areas of exponential innovation. Um, those are what we call the new economies. Um, and I'm being asked, obviously, to pick my favorite amongst them, um, <laughs> uh, which I'll actually do. So, so I think that there are, you know, across the patch, um, there's extraordinary things happening. We know this, um, yeah. and it's you know it's hard to get on the other side. For instance, of the developments in genetic engineering, and you know the fact that you may have seen the news out of London that the third person has been cured of HIV, mm. and researchers are now um, uh, you know looking to working to silence a CCR5 gene, the receptors of that, so that the virus can't be. Um, you know, can't, can't be absorbed into the cell. You know, those kinds of developments, it's very hard to say, you know, living a longer and healthier life is anything but, you know, yeah. the top of my list. Yeah. But actually, there are a couple of areas that I think are absolutely fascinating, um, and uh, not necessarily for first order reasons. The first is uh, autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I, and not only is the technology interesting, um, because obviously it brings together a lot of what we've already been talking about in terms of AI and processing power and connectivity and so on. Um, but it's actually the impact of those, um, both in terms of um, you know, uh, r real estate use, uh, derivative industries, how are they going to be, uh, how that's going to um, accommodate. Uh, these changes, even vehicle ownership, and you know what, what does it what what does it mean to you know, will dealerships exist and why do they exist? And if you're an OEM, if you're Ford, and you're producing uh, autonomous vehicles, why on earth would you? And and everything's autonomous. Why don't you own the network? Which is yeah. of course what Tesla has suggested. Yeah. Then that presents the questions. Well, what about Uber? You know, and what's their place in this? Which is, of course, why they're trying to develop their own autonomous vehicles, right, in partnership. So I think that's absolutely fascinating. It is, yeah. You, you know, you look at the real estate use. There's, there's astonishing statistics. Thirteen percent of LA is devoted to parking spaces. Oh wow! Thirteen percent. Wow. Right. So you then extrapolate that and say, okay, well, you know, your autonomous vehicle is not going to need a downtown parking spot. Uh, it's actually not going to need a parking spot at all until it sort of goes out of town and presumably in where. And, and the number of vehicles are going to change, right, drop dramatically because, you know, as we know, that over 90% of a vehicle's life is spent sitting stationary. So um, I think that that is, is um, I think that's a very exciting area. Um, I think it's also interesting that while we've, you know, we've seen Google, Waymo and so on over the course of, the last uh, few years, you know, do their, have their sort of practice runs. Um, 
you've now got GM have filed to commercialize a fully autonomous vehicle, so no pedals, no steering wheels, and so on, with the National Highway uh, Traffic Safety Authority. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and actually, they filed to start commercializing this year. So it's not that we're necessarily going to see them running around outside. But yeah. this is going to happen, I think, much, much closer, much nearer than a nearer term than a lot of people anticipate. Not only is it an exciting story, but the ETF that's trying to capture this has a really cool ticker symbol. Uh, uh, yes, that's right. Hail. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we partnered, as, as you say, with Spiders to yeah. launch ETFs on, on this. And um, so this is our smart transportation index. But the other area, just very yeah. briefly, is, yes. is space, which I think is, is fascinating for a couple of different reasons. You know, it's also fascinating, but it's hard to understand how it's going to make money. But I think you're going to tell me. I'm going to tell you. So <laughs> let me tell you that it makes money now. In fact, it, does, yep. it is a $368 billion industry today. Wow. That's right. So, wow. yep. and, and this is what's so interesting to me is that this is a very significant industry that has uh, extraordinary uh, uh, growth potential in the near to midterm. And I'm not talking about Sort of space tourism as as the method by which it's going to do that. Yeah. Um, if you think about the next generation of GPS, you think about five um, uh, G and backhauling, um, so that we've got you know broad based connectivity. Uh, we've seen from both Blue Origin and SpaceX, uh, uh, they file for thousands of co uh, constellations um, of mini nanosats for internet uh, access around the world. Earth observation, which is a huge deal. So if you think about this from weather, transportation, from agriculture, actually using analytics from space to drive a lot of the capabilities on Earth. Yeah. Um, those are, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity there. And then, of course, there's security. So you've heard President Trump talk about Space Force. It's a very real thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I could club together and get a satellite into space. So uh, a launch in 2011 cost 450 million. It's about 50 oh, yeah, we million can do that. today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the 450 <laughs> yeah, I well, yeah, figured yeah. was a stretch, yeah. but you know, I, I you know, I've seen the car you drive. So so I know <laughs> I know that these days we're in good we're we're in a good place. Okay, yeah. great. Well, can we do one more industry? Yeah, I think we can. One more one well, more Well, you idea. know what? Yeah. Well, rather I think that what is it, what what we've done yeah. is actually look across the landscape. Let's talk about the composite. Yeah, let's do I that. Yes, I think that's yeah, yeah. interesting. Right. So what we've just discussed is 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 basically each of these industries, each of these twenty five areas, are moving at different speeds. Uh -huh. So you've got space, as I say, various large established um, industry with great growth potential. On the other side of the spectrum, you've probably got something like virtual reality. It's going to be hugely disruptive in the way that we communicate and live our lives actually going forward. Um, but it's nascent, it's tiny. Uh, and what we've recognized is that, is that um, each of these industries go through a very similar gestation. They go through this sort of maturity curve um, that looks a bit like a wave. Um, and you know, from initial innovation trigger, Gartner has a, a hype cycle, so it looks very similar. You, you uh, may have come across it. From initial innovation trigger, there's you know sharp ramp up in excitement and returns do the same thing. Um, there's typically a, 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 a pause where people contemplate have they got ahead of themselves before there's some kind of correction and a more sustainable ramp up. So you've got this kind of wave um, function. What we've done is, is in recognizing that we've built an algorithmic proxy for where each of those industries are in their gestation. Mm. And then we weight them relative to where all the others are. So the, uh, we, in the composite, um, we uh, provide investors with the broadest possible exposure to the fourth industrial revolution, um, all set within a disciplined and, and, and transparent framework. Uh, while not, you, know, you don't have to hold on to your hat because 3D printing got ahead of itself. And actually, you know what, we're still going to have some freighters from China with some plastic widgets in them. Yeah. So um, it, you know, I think that that's a, that's a valuable um, tool. You know, when we talk about this level of disruption and the speed of this disruption, having something that is adaptive, that can track it, I think, is, I think that's an important capability. I think the, um, the ETF that captures that, the, the composite, 
is fantastic, though, um, and the symbol is obviously the um, the artificial intelligence know how to spell it, though. It spells it with a K instead of a C. K-O-M-P. It, it's K-O-M-P. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so Kardashian. So I have one other question kind of going on a tangent here. So you've started multiple companies. What do you think makes a successful entrepreneur, and do you think those skills will become even more important in the new economy? Um. Well, I think I think any entrepreneur is is likely to, um, uh, you know, I, I think you've 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 got to persevere. You've um, you've got to be flexible and nimble. Um, I don't think there's there there are, there are very few companies that have started out life uh, the same way that they end up. Yeah. So you've got to be able to to pivot. And of course, between perseverance and flexibility, there's there's a there's a there's a fine line there, isn't yeah, there? It's yeah. like, at what point am I pivoting and giving up on a direction that I thought I believed in? So I think flexibility, perseverance, and I, and I think, you know, um, being brave and uh, not being afraid of failure. Uh, I think that there are very few successful entrepreneurs out there who haven't failed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the, in the sort of spirit of uh, agile, um, kind of development methodologies and, and management methodologies is, you know, fail fast, yeah. which is, you know, a very counterintuitive thing. We is, we're not brought up to think fail fast, but actually that's the right thing to do. Right. Exactly. Um, I think it's also instructive. You know, we've talked about this. Uh, you know, is this going to, are those kinds of capabilities sort of important in, uh, and increasingly important within the context of what we're talking about? And I think the answer is, is unequivocally yes. If you think that, and I assume these statistics are correct, about a third of uh, U.S. workers are part of the so-called gig economy. So they're already entrepreneurial in nature. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the very nature of how we work and unemployment has changed and is changing and continues to change. I think the other aspect here is, and we talked about the reskilling um, and this you know, very abrupt change which is gonna happen over a very short period of time, that's going to require all of the characteristics we're talking about. Yes. You know, flexibility, bravery, um, and perseverance. Yeah. So you know, you've spent years doing one thing and you're now going to reskill and do something else. Mm -hmm. um, and it may be, you know, it, it may be adjacent or it may be in, entirely different. Yeah. So, so I think that, it's, that those kinds of capabilities or characteristics are gonna be increasingly important. How can we find out more about Kensho and the ETFs that you've been talking about? Well, the, in, from the, the indices perspective and, yep. and our uh, approach to the, the framework, um, if you go to kenshoindices.com, yep. um, we've got a lot of information, including the white paper that I, that I mentioned. Excellent. Um, and, and I think uh, uh, State Street would be best place to, to answer this, but yeah. I think the, states, the, the spider ETFs are available Perfect. Um, on the State Street. Well, John, I really appreciate your time here. Any closing words? I, I hold on. This is hold on to your seats. This is going to be a fun ride. Absolutely. Well, thanks Thank again, so John. Okay. Take care. Pretty cool stuff. That's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS is the Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.